0: Welcome to The Power of Data, the podcast by Dun & Bradstreet. Data is everywhere, and there is more created every second of every day. Join us to hear from leaders unlocking the value of data. Hello, and welcome to The Power of Data podcast. I'm Rochelle. I'm the head of ESG Product at Dun & Bradstreet. And today, I'm really excited to be joined by Tim Doyle, the Senior Policy Advisor at Bipartisan Policy Center. Welcome, Tim. How are you today?
1: Hi, Rochelle. Nice to be with you. Uh, And I'm doing quite well. Thanks uh, for having me on.
0: We're really happy to have you. So, Tim, it'd be wonderful if you could kick off this podcast with a bit about yourself and your background. You've had an impressive career in positions related to public policy and legal counsel. Could you just give our listeners a brief overview of your journey and your role today?
1: Sure, absolutely. Like so many people in DC, I have a diverse background in a number of different things starting a number of years ago. We won't tell how long, but in state politics, believe it or not, it was a trial attorney, which I have to say I miss now and then. Worked on some congressional committees Then probably maybe relevant to your listeners, back in 2010, I think was the first time I started working on corporate social responsibility issues. And then probably more specifically in the corporate governance and ESG space back in 2016. I worked for a small think tank here in D.C. called the American Council for Capital Formation. Uh, And I believe we are some of the first, that group and others at the time, a small group of people here in D.C. that really started to talk about these issues. Now, of course, they are experts in ESG everywhere you go. And then most recently, it's been a couple of years now, but spearheaded at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a program that we created on corporate governance and ESG. So that's a pretty good background, I think.
0: Definitely, definitely. And yeah, around that time, you know, the 2016, right after the UN Sustainable Development Goals were launched and the Paris Agreement, you started to see a lot of focus on ESG. And so that's interesting to hear, you know, on the ground, your experience with that. And yes, today we're seeing a lot of focus on ESG. It's evolved very quickly.
1: Yeah. And in D.C., as you recall, back in that time, there were really few people talking about it obviously at the SEC, Senate Banking and Health Financial Services. But outside of those pretty small groups from at least public policy, people weren't talking about it. And certainly they weren't talking about it administrative-wide as they are now or D.C.-wide, as, as the case may be.
0: Definitely. Yeah, you know, related to that, what do you think are the main reasons why we're seeing such a increased focus on this area, ESG, particularly from companies?
1: Sure. I think it probably, you know, there's always been shareholder activists for a variety of different reasons. They get involved with companies at their annual meetings and want to either steer the direction of the company or get questions answered for them. But I think you know, it's probably been you know five or six years, maybe a little bit longer. There's a kind of a different type of shareholder activism that started to have more focus on broader issues and what we now call ESG back then wasn't necessarily called ESG, but, you know, corporate social responsibility and, and governance issues. So that was probably where it started, I think, is shareholder activism at the annual meetings. I think then that following through that or, or when that became a bigger issue was when proxy advisory firms started to have recommendations that were affecting the voters, you know, the, the shareholders. And then, of course, I think truly when companies really were like, wait a minute, something this isn't just shareholder activists that we deal with every year with the same kind of proposal over and over again. This is something much larger than that. And I think that that happened probably when institutional investors, the you know, Black Rocks vanguards of the world, started to side with some of the activists on some of the issues. And it started on the climate change, but it has now expanded into a broader ESG topic. And then probably lastly, for, for those of us in D.C., when D.C. probably got the wake-up call was, I mean, it probably happened before this, but I really try to use this as a starting point, was Business Roundtable, I guess it's been two years now, came out with their purpose of corporations or purpose of a company and reconfigured or kind of changed the definition or how we discuss the role of corporations. It's not just a shareholder primacy or based on just shareholders, but rather this broader stakeholder analysis. And so I think that's when people in D.C. started to be like, whoa, Something really is happening here. It started in Wall Street and it is now here in D.C.
0: That's so interesting to hear that perspective from the DC area. And yes, that business roundtable, key leaders in the business world joined that. So I'm sure it was a major symbol of where the shape of leadership would go and where the mainstream may go. And yeah, you know, Larry Fink and BlackRock, I remember his 2014 letter to companies asking to stop sacrificing long-term value at the price of short-term gain.
1: Short-termism,
0: yep. Yep. And then his most recent one, was just all about climate and carbon neutrality, and extremely explicit. So it's very interesting to see that evolution. Yeah, it's been
1: interesting when it comes to Larry Fink because his annual letter that comes out. I think it's in January that that it comes out. I mean, people really do when it comes out. I mean, it's at least it has now become in D.C. something to like look forward to. Like, what is he going to say now? Like, where is he taking it? And it's just because BlackRock, for those that for listeners that don't know, and I'm assuming most do, but it's the largest institutional investor, I believe, in the world, something almost close to like seven trillion under management. I mean, and it's just a giant company. Well the company itself is is large but i mean because of the amount of money that they manage it really has a an incredible influence. So when he speaks it's kind of like back in the i guess it's the 80s when they said EF Hutton when EF Hutton spoke everyone listened. I kind of feel like when Larry Fink makes a statement I mean people people listen.
0: Definitely. Yes, I couldn't couldn't agree more. And part of that too is BlackRock owns a little bit of almost every company. So it's difficult to be shielded from global events like climate which i think is is one reason you mentioned climate earlier this is something that's really emerging as potentially mandatory in the us and mandatory in other areas For example, the governments of the UK, New Zealand, Hong Kong, Switzerland, and the G7 group of nations have said they will back the Task Force on Climate-Related Financial Disclosure, or TCFD, framework that uh, outlines the type of disclosure to articulate in relation to climate. I know that this is an area you've covered closely you know, what's your perspective on the momentum in the U.S. in terms of mandating disclosure of climate change in company reports?
1: Yeah, so I guess there's probably two different issues in that question. First being momentum to disclose. and I would say the second is mandating disclosure. So let me address momentum first. I think that there's a growing sense that companies must disclose how they are addressing the impacts of climate change on their operations. I, I think at least all of the large companies, the large cap companies are certainly doing that. And it's starting to filter to mid-size and even now smaller companies are starting to address that. How they address it, of course, is the key here. And I think people get concerned in the companies about how they're supposed to do it. But clearly, companies are, are conducting these what they call climate risk assessments under different scenarios to try to figure out how it will impact them. And as I mentioned, though, not all companies are going to be affected by climate change in the same way. And some of this has to do with the predictability in some of the modeling that they use on these impacts and how far out they go and how that's going to affect them. And I don't think companies are like, well, we're not sure climate change is occurring. I think that they're all on board with that it is. The question is how it actually will impact them. And the models that they use, some are, are extreme on one end and some are extreme on the other. And it depends on kind of the models. And so it gets very difficult when you're predicting out, you know, 10, 15, 15, 30 years, And then the other issue I think that companies are trying to address is the mitigating technologies that are beginning to emerge and we're kind of seeing, ironically, a lot of them seem to be coming out of the oil and gas sector from carbon capture to carbon removal and things of that nature. Ideally, if, if those technologies really take off, that could change the equation in how companies are dealing with climate. And of course, then there's a geopolitical event, right? I mean, we're currently in an energy crisis. Like, how will that affect the companies in the future? So on the momentum, that's kind of where there, where there is. I think short answer is, yes, there's momentum. And I think companies are going to be disclosing more. Mm-hmm. The second part of the question, which is on mandating, I think this is where a lot of companies have some real concern in the U.S., The EU and others globally are are a little bit further ahead than the SEC is on this. But I think that there are U.S. companies that are concerned with mandating a more prescriptive framework. And and the idea, of course, behind the prescriptive framework is that it creates consistency and a comparable framework, which those that are in favor of that say it's lacking right now. On the other side of it, you have companies that are... That believe that a principles base, which is kind of the current model now that we have, is a better way to take into consideration the differences among sectors and within companies themselves. Not to mention the added costs associated with this prescriptive framework, especially when you look into things, Very kind of getting in the weeds here a little bit, but when you get into things like scope three emissions that are just incredibly difficult and will be costly for companies to be able to gather and then, of course, disclose. Now, all that being said, From a momentum and a mandating side of it, the SEC is, in fact, moving forward with a rulemaking, probably later this year, early next year, where they will be mandating. It's pretty clear, based on comments from the chairman of the SEC, that they will be promulgating a rule on a prescriptive framework, and in particular, as you mentioned in the question, on TCFD. And I think Gensler has indicated, I think on a couple of different occasions, that he's not going to wholeheartedly embrace TCFD verbatim, but I think that the framework that they will come up with will be largely based on TCFD. So that's probably where we stand, I think, when it comes to momentum and mandate.
0: Got it. And and for those who are not as familiar, what's the main difference between a, a principles-based and then a prescriptive-based directive around climate change disclosure?
1: The simplest way is that on a principles base, you set a set of principles, and actually TCFD is, in fact, based on principles. A lot of people don't realize that. They think it's very prescriptive. And actually, TCFD is not. So they have a set of principles, and then you as a company, you use those principles and assess how they affect your individual company and then disclose accordingly as opposed to a prescriptive, typically then mandated disclosure, you almost feel like a fill in the blank. Like you must provide this piece of information, not whether that piece of information is material or not to your business, but you have to disclose it regardless. That's the main difference. And this is what many argue for is it will undoubtedly result in companies having to disclose more information. Those of us that follow kind of the courts on this more information does not necessarily mean better information or understandable information, but we'll leave that <laughs> for a later discussion.
0: <laughs> Definitely. Yeah, that's really interesting, Tim. And we see that momentum building from the SEC around the mandatory disclosure. For example, they released uh, their recent sample letter to companies regarding climate change disclosure, and it outlines some of the pieces that companies might be required to disclose later on. You know, curious in your initial thoughts about this sample letter, do you think it covers enough, for example? So in 2010,
1: there was guidance on climate change disclosure that the SEC put out. And since that time, and definitely in the last year or so, the SEC has indicated it wants to update or clarify that guidance document. Essentially, that guidance document instructs companies on, on how to disclose in this space. So there's guidance out there, current guidance out there from 2010 that that the SEC wants to update. The SEC is also working on a proposed rule that's coming out on climate risk disclosure. So the SEC is, I believe, and this is just my personal opinion, I believe the SEC is telegraphing, is telling companies that they absolutely are engaging on the 2010 guidance document. However, until the guidance document is updated or a rule is finalized, We expect you as companies to disclose in these certain areas or in these certain ways. And and that's really what the the letter is, telling companies that, hey, if you plan on waiting until our guidance is actually updated or the rule is finalized, we're here to tell you you ought not do that, that our enforcement folks are going to be looking pretty clearly at what you are disclosing. So that's what I believe the sample letter is. So does it cover enough? I guess from what I've heard that the SEC wants to do, I would say, no, it doesn't cover enough for them, for sure. But I think it's kind of a shot across the bow, of, if you will, of companies to say this is what the SEC expects them to do. And quite frankly, if the updated rule is everything that the SEC wants it to be, there might not need to update that guidance because it will be covered in the rule. Because as those that kind of follow the regulatory process, you have a rule typically comes out and guidance usually is a follow up to a rule when questions come out about the rule. Rules have much more weight from a legal point of view than guidance. So that's where I think the SEC is going. And it's a long way of saying why I think the letter came out.
0: Yeah, that's super helpful to have a little bit more of the background and also your perspective from the policy elements of how this plays out and how this will eventually affect companies who will need to comply potentially with those rules we talked about TCFD, we mentioned, is a framework for helping to articulate what to focus on in terms of climate change disclosure. It is principles-based. There are some metrics included. And it is very forward-looking. For example, it requires a scenario planning analysis to look into the future with different types of warming scenarios. I think this is, you know, obviously the first choice in terms of informing a framework, but doesn't necessarily tackle the short-term impacts of climate. You know, we've seen recently storms and floods and instances that are really testing the resiliency of companies. So I'm curious, do you think it's the right framework to use? And are there other elements missing that maybe will come out in that guidance, perhaps?
1: Sure. Well, Chairman Gensler the SEC has indicated that TCFD will be the basis or the framework. So I guess whether it's the right framework or not, that's the one I think they're going to use. So I guess it probably doesn't matter beyond that, uh, so to speak. But I will say this. So obviously, Chairman Gensler's referenced it multiple times. A number of companies use it, or at least part of it, right? I don't know how many actually fill it out or use it to its full extent, but many companies use aspects of it in their disclosure. Of course, then there are the big five or the major five standard setters and frameworks, and that's the GRI Global Reporting Initiative, CDP, which is formerly the Carbon Disclosure Project, Climate Disclosure Standards Board, IIRC, and SASB. So those are the big five, although I think SASB and IIRC now have merged and become the Value Reporting Foundation. But I say all that because these are the five major standard setters, current major standard setters and framework creators. They all, all five of them, abide by TCFD. So the idea that you're going to have something different than TCFD, I just don't see that happening. And lastly, and we mentioned it before, but Larry, (laughs) Larry Fink, you know, he always comes up when we're we're talking about this stuff. You know, I think it's his last two letters, Rochelle, but it it definitely might have been this last year for sure, where he essentially said in his annual letter to CEOs that he expects companies to report using TCFD. So I think with all of those things going on, I think companies can pretty much rely on the fact that TCFD or something very similar to it will be required of them. So whether it's the right framework, I guess we'll see. Um, I think the real issue is how it's implemented. As we may have talked about before, you know, companies have used TCFD and all disclosure and standard setters as a tool to disclose the data that they determine that their investors would kind of want to know in order to make investment decisions. And so some of this gets back to our initial discussion about prescriptive versus principles-based disclosure uh, framework. So it'll be interesting to see how the SEC mandates a prescriptive version of TCFD. So stay tuned, right? (laughs) We'll we'll see soon enough. I think, as I mentioned, something will be out either the end of this year or first quarter next year.
0: Certainly, yes. And as we were talking about earlier, what we're seeing right now is a real culmination of... Alignment and uh, reaction, and also sophistication in terms of the type of ESG information we want to see, and it makes sense that it would be built upon the foundation of these frameworks that have been around for you know almost as long as as ESG has been a concept. So very interesting. Earlier, you were mentioning about the rule, right, and this letter kind of giving a precursor of what to expect with the intent that enforcement may be forthcoming, you know, sooner than later. We're already starting to see some of that enforcement. For example, there's several companies under SEC investigation for quote greenwashing or overstating sustainability claims. In your opinion, you know, what are some of the steps organizations can take to ensure that they're measuring ESG genuinely and they don't come under fire for accusations of greenwashing?
1: Right, well, some of it is going to depend on the type of company and the sector they're in some sectors are just going to be open to greenwashing no matter kind of what they do but for for advice I suppose as to what organizations to do I, I would say they need to be careful what they're saying uh, and this is from a I suppose a legal perspective because you don't certainly don't want to open yourselves up to class action lawsuits about Misleading statements or omissions or thereof when you're talking about what your company is doing to either overcome a greenwashing allegation or just as a statement as to what you're doing. So I w- would say definitely say be careful what you say, make sure it makes sense. And I think that, you know, quite frankly, investors are already asking some of these questions. The, the SEC is already doing investigations. Commissioner Hester Peirce, you know, back in the prior administration, this was one of her big issues. She was concerned that people in Wall Street are slapping the ESG label. On On all kinds of funds and practices that aren't really defined, (laughs) which is an issue we can talk about in a minute about how ESG is really not as defined as maybe it should be for for other things. So, for specific steps, though, I I think that ESG issues need to be addressed and taken at the highest level. Like this wasn't always the case, especially when you're talking like corporate social responsibility and your sustainability reports. Certainly, the executives of C suite kind of knew about it historically. But I don't think that they, until relatively recently, the last few years, I don't think they took it to the level that it needs to be, which is truly an issue equal to the financial concerns that a company would have. So there's that. It needs to be addressed at a very high level. I think that the initiatives that companies say that they're going to do, they got to follow through with it. So don't create an initiative or or say you have an or you're going to do this initiative with no intention of doing it or no ability to do that. And so that probably gets me to my next one, which is to set realistic and obtainable goals. I think that from an investor perspective and probably societal, I suppose, from a DC perspective, as long as we can see that a company is moving in the direction that those that are supportive or that that are embracing the ESG philosophy, as long as they see companies moving in that direction, I think most companies are going to be okay, again, provided they're setting these realistic and obtainable goals. And then, you know, as we've talked about before too, a lot of companies see ESG disclosure as strictly a negative, as a costly thing. And it does have costs. I'm not, I'm not here to say that it doesn't, it can have incredible costs. At the same time, ESG issues can be used by companies to promote themselves and distinguish themselves. And and this is where I think that if you're doing it in the way we've just kind of discussed, it may not prevent the accusation of greenwashing, but you will be able to better refute or rebut that claim if you are doing the things that we kind of talked about. So those are probably the off the top of my head, some small pieces of advice that might be helpful in the greenwashing space. You know, again, as I mentioned, sometimes it's just going to be inevitable based on the company and or sector. People are just going to say that.
0: Sure. Yeah. And I think to your point about certain sectors, it is going to be very particular for that. You know, this year we saw more underwriting funds generated in banks from issuing ESG bonds or sustainability bonds versus fossil fuel bonds. So the money is going towards ESG in a real way in the financial markets. But then it does beg the question. What data is behind that? Is that truly, you know, ESG related or is it simply trying to attract those premiums?
1: Right. You just hit the nail on the head, so to speak, that the data is still coming in. And I think that it's probably more likely than not that there are ESG funds and companies that claim that they are embracing ESG that aren't. And I think it concerns the SEC. That's why the investigations are happening. But I think at some point, investors are going to realize that. So I think with a combination of a regulatory hand, as well as in the end, it'll be in the returns. That's when I think you'll see a more settling out of ESG funds and methodologies in using ESG to make investment decisions.
0: From my perspective of a data provider and an ESG provider, it's very challenging to get quality ESG data today. You know, some companies have some disclosure. There's different ways to triangulate it. But in general, the way to overcome that lack of quality is, you know, from the investor community, perhaps, or do you think that it would need to come more from regulatory?
1: It's coming from both, I think, well, in the previous administration, and, you know, you can obviously take the fact that it was a a different administration into consideration when I say this, but I think it was more on the investor side of the change that were happening, and that historically had been the case. I think this current administration and the current SEC plans on doing it regulatorily because they believe that the investor side either wasn't working or wasn't working quickly enough. And so I think that that would be what's happening now. And so barring a change in the administration, which we will know won't happen for a couple of years, based on what Chairman Gensler at the SEC, what Secretary Yellen what the president and others have said that I think there will be and continue to be a regulatory push for this, not only at the SEC, but throughout the administration. So regulation is coming. If, if there's one takeaway from thus, thus far, it's regulation is coming. <laughs> we'll see what it actually looks like.
0: Yeah, that is the question, right? So what will it look like? I'm sure it will be uh, an interesting development and process. Speaking of regulation, we focused a lot on investors and and public companies, those companies that big asset managers like BlackRock and others are invested in. But we are starting to see some regulation impact private companies, notably Germany's Supply Chain Act that is requiring companies operating in Germany to disclose ESG data on their tier one or direct suppliers. What do you foresee as the trend relating to mandatory private company ESG disclosure?
1: Well, I think that from an SEC point of view, and I suppose there are some arguments, but I think that they really are the minority view here. So I think majority of those from a legal perspective do not believe the SEC has the authority to regulate private companies in the way in which we've just discussed. I don't see that happening. That being said, that there certainly is when you look at bills that have passed, in particular the, the House Bill of Disclosure Act that passed this past June. Clearly, the sense of Congress is that they would like them to do that, but I think you need more than that. So I don't see it at least initially. And the SEC's got their hands full with all kinds of other you know non-private or public companies that, that deal with, and that of course is their mission statement. You know, all that being said is. That, as we mentioned a minute ago, the rest of the administration from Treasury on down, they do have some tools to affect what private companies do. For instance, any of those that have federal contracts and that are bidding on future contracts. When it comes to assessments that they are done in in various departments, private companies can all be affected through that. So while I will say the SEC is unlikely to be successful in regulating private companies, I think the whole of government approach that the Biden administration is taking with regard to climate, I think that they will be able to affect private companies to a certain extent.
0: Yeah, that's a very valid point. I think we have started to see that with the real estate sector and some of the many new codes and regulations that have come out around energy efficiency and building uh, resiliency and things that are naturally occurring, you know, on the municipal or state or even federal level in some cases. So yeah, I see what you mean. There can certainly be a proliferation in trying to enforce these ESG priorities, maybe not from the SEC, as you mentioned, their purview is really on those big public companies, but through other avenues as well. Well, thank you, Tim. This has been incredibly insightful and so excellent to get your on-the-ground perspective in terms of these policies and developments. It's certainly going to be an interesting next year, I think, as some of these developments settle out. We talked you know a lot about looking forward and what's happening, but you know anything else that you might see shaping ESG and the industry going forward, we talked a lot about climate, but anything else that you would want to um, share with us?
1: Sure. Well, as you know anyone that's been following the ESG issues in general realize that it's a very broad, I and mean, some would argue too broad of a category where almost anything can fit under an ESG umbrella. So I do think the administration and the SEC is focusing on some other issues, obviously, other than climate. But I would say that emerging trend or the one that I think is probably the one that people should pay attention to the most, or at least pay attention to, is on human capital management. This is something that will there'll almost certainly be a rule on disclosing human capital management coming out roughly the same time as the climate the climate rule. I think the SEC has realized that they bitten off a pretty big chunk when it comes to ESG. And so there'll be a number of rules. But I think human capital management, in particular, Chairman Gensler's talked about it repeatedly. So I think it's coming. And human capital management, of course, really opens up a whole new issue for companies. Because it's, you know, a lot of people, when they think of it, they're like, oh, you just want to know our diversity numbers or our hiring trends or things of that nature. And the way it looks, and of course, we haven't seen the rule. So I'm again, speculating, but the way it seems to be is that, The SEC is going to be asking for something more than just disclosure of human capital management. That is, you know, from a diversity to other metrics, but they're going to be asking companies a little bit more. They're going to ask for analysis in that disclosure. And I think there are a number of companies across sectors that are concerned with that. And if you think about it, I suppose it makes sense, right? Because really you're talking about strictly disclosing the numbers versus kind of something closer to the day-to-day activities of a company and whether we should be requiring companies to disclose those types of decisions especially when as many would argue some of these day-to-day decisions when it comes to human capital management make them a competitive advantage or is in a realm of competing with other companies and so you know at some point where do you draw the line and so i think that is going to be an emerging issue and then of course as all things go esg and i'll end with this is information overload and so this is something the Supreme Court, when initially dealing with the issue of materiality and, and what companies should disclose, the court was very specific on saying that they have a real concern that if companies provide too much information, that a reasonable investor just won't know how to process all of the data in a way that is going to be beneficial so that they can make an informed investment decision. So while climate change, of course, and climate-related risk are not there yet, but I think human capital management and other broader categories of ESG, we get, I think, a little bit closer to that point of information overload. So it'll be interesting to see, but one that I think people should keep an eye on.
0: So interesting. Yes. We could have a whole other podcast on that last point, Tim. Thank you for that. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a pleasure speaking with you again. And I hope those listeners on the Power of Data podcast also enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Tim.
1: Thank you, Rochelle. I really appreciate being here with you today.
0: And uh, thank you all for your time today. Find out more about how Dun & Bradstreet can help your business be better. Contact us at marketinguk at dnb.com. And remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts,
1: Spotify
0: and Google Podcasts.